0: everyone and welcome to another instalment of the Talking Intellectual History series hosted by the Institute of Intellectual History at St Andrews. My name is Robin Mills, Early Career Research Fellow at Queen Mary University of London and today I am delighted to be speaking to Dr Craig Smith. Hello Craig, how are you doing? Hello, good thanks. <laughs> so, Craig is Adam Smith, Senior Lecturer in the Scottish Enlightenment in the School of Social and Political Studies at Glasgow. He's the author of several books and many articles including last year Adam Ferguson, The Idea of Civil Society for Edinburgh University Press, which was a rather brilliant book that encourages us to reconsider whether Adam Ferguson is sort of the outsider, the angry, hot-headed outsider in Scottish Enlightenment studies. Is he more like Rousseau than he is Hume? And um, encouraging us to think that maybe Ferguson is part of the same conversation, trying to educate you know, the middle classes of uh, Scotland's emerging commercial society. Um, maybe has different things to say to Hume and Smith, but is basically in the same sort of mainstream uh, line. If I've got anything wrong there, you jump in in a moment. And then a few weeks ago, a a new volume, the one we'll be talking about today, uh, Adam Smith in Polity Press down in Cambridge, Polity Press's classic Thinkers series. So a sort of introduction to Adam Smith. Yeah, we'll be having a bit of a chat about some of the key underlying themes in that book. Was that an okay summary of the Adam Ferguson
1: Volume? I think, it, I th- yeah, I think that was a fair summary. I, I, I could probably have had that as the blurb, to be honest.
0: <laughs> okay, so how did you come to write uh, your uh, this introduction to your namesake?
1: Yeah, um, really, what happened was that uh, I, I was approached by by Quality, um, and they had the idea, a general idea, that they thought that Smith would be a good person to have in this series, um, but they pointed out that there was no, there's no set methodology to the series so if you look at the books on different thinkers they're they're conducted or written in very different ways some of them are straightforwardly descriptive some of them are uh, pursue a particular interpretation some focus on aspects of one of a thinker and not other aspects of the thinker so they were really quite open about um, how they wanted me to approach it and I think the sense that I got was that there is Smith is somebody who's been written about a lot and a lot of different types of book have been written about him but what I thought was kind of missing from the um from from the literature as it stands at the moment was a book that tried to introduce all of the different elements of Smith and to show that they were connected to each other that he wasn't just somebody who wrote on economics or somebody who wrote on moral philosophy but that he was somebody who wrote on this and on other um, topics and th- these things were not disconnected so to speak
0: okay well that leads me on uh, to the sort of the my first question which might split into two so one of the themes that comes uh, across frequently is uh, uh tell me if this is the right way of phrasing it a uh, viewing that uh, encouraging us to view smith as a systematic thinker and this is there's there's he's a yeah there's a system at work and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. I always thought that um being a systematic thinker in the eighteenth century was an insult, right? You think of Descartes explaining all of the gaps in his ideas or the gaps in his information by p- forcing it together into yeah. his into his system. So it's interesting that Smith um was happy to be described as a systematic thinker or wanted to work in those terms. so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. and then that might feed into narrowing that down a little bit into your description of him as a cautious social scientist Mm -hmm. which I quite liked so yeah how is he a systematic thinker and how is that applied to social science
1: yeah um I think he's a systematic thinker on a number of levels and I think you're right to point out that in the 18th century there was a worry about the idea of system particularly around the example of of Descartes, and this worry was that You would attempt to you would start with a set of principles or a systematic set of philosophical principles and ideas and you would then attempt to um, make reality fit those ideas and i think that sense of system is something that smith reacts against um so if he's a systematic thinker what he wants to do is look around the world and look at how um people behave and how they understand themselves and how um the interact in the social and with the natural world, and attempt to to, to create a, a body of explanatory knowledge that connects together without radically departing from that experience. So one of the ways that he, he does this very often is he presents his analysis as a very clearly in a very clearly organized fashion. So if you look at the two great books, The Wealth of the Nations and the Theory of Moral Sentiments he starts those books with an explanatory principle, a principle that he's going to use to explain and explore the wider topic. So famously with The Wealth of Nations, it's the division of labor in the first line, and with The Theory of Moral Sentiments, it's sympathy in the first line. And those are the ideas he then goes on to explore. So he's systematic in the way that he writes, he's systematic in the way he wants to connect together the different elements of his enterprise, But he's not a man of system, as he calls um, the alternative approach. The person who wants to map, um, make the world fit with his ideas, move people about like chessmen on a chessboard is the image that he uses for the sake of the system. And you find throughout his work a whole set of different conceptions of what system is and why people are attracted to it. So he thinks that, that human beings are naturally attracted to order, into system we find those things beautiful and so part of our satisfaction being a systematic thinker and being able to create and explain the world is also if you like an aesthetic um, pleasure that's gained from that and that helps him to explain why human beings pursue um, science and and, and 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 study history it's mainly because we're, we're being driven to it to be honest with you um, we have a, a need to, to explore order and once we find order we find that attractive and, and it's something that we we're satisfied by you know when you can explain um, the operation of the, the movement of the planets or if you can explain how a, a price is reached in a market those explanations are themselves things that satisfy us um, and being able to connect together different explanations of the phenomena around about that that I think really is what Smith's about. It's about a, a different, um, a different understanding of, of, of system, and and I think in in response to your your second point, I think that's actually a very good point to to, to observe. Is that once he has his system, he's not somebody who is um, he's not somebody who thinks that everybody needs to then accept this system and that it will naturally hold as the single explanatory model or the single guide for policy makers. He's very much a pragmatist when it comes to that um, kind of thing. So he has a system. He knows his system can explain the operation of the economy or the evolution of shared moral beliefs. But on the basis of that, he's not going to believe that any kind of... um, policy decision can be brought through that will change the interests and the behaviour of, indivi- of the individuals that he's describing. So he's not necessarily saying, well, once we understand this, then everybody's going to accept it and change their behaviour to, to, to operate um, in the most efficient fashion in the economy, for example. He doesn't think that's, that's, that's true. Equally, he doesn't think that um, having explained um, the basis of the generation of shared moral beliefs, um, he doesn't necessarily believe that because um, he's done that, he's going to radically change the moral attitudes of the people in the society he lives in, um, and that's mainly because he believes that um, a great deal of our, our moral experience is an emotional experience. So I think the the, the 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 pragmatic side of him comes through in that idea of him being a cautious social scientist. We have the knowledge, but you know we need to be aware of the fact that there are other factors and features. That are going to come into play in, in in how that pans out in society.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, uh, who do you think he is writing for then? If it's not um, if uh, theory of moral sentiments isn't going to change every reader, and make them behave differently. What is the purpose of? Who's his audience? What is he trying to achieve? That's kind of sort of authorial intention question. What mm-hmm. is the point of those two
1: works? Yeah, um, I think I think he has a a couple of different audiences in mind for, for the theory of moral sentiments. I think the Wealth of Nations is more more generally aimed at an informed audience, the general public. I think that was the audience for that. And policymakers would pick up on that, obviously, and 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 the hope would be that they would read it, but not with the idea that it would provide them with a plan for their, their economic policy. Theory of moral sentiments, I think, ha, ha, has that general audience in mind. Um but it also has uh, a more specific audience in mind, which is the moral philosopher's writing in that period in the 18th century, particularly the French and British moral philosophers. So he's very much a, a contributor to a particular philosophical debate um, around about the nature of moral experience um, and about the, um, the, the the place of uh, moral experience in a kind of set of relationships between um, reason, um, the sentiments, um, customs, habits, and traditions, that, that part of that wider discussion um, with thinkers like Hutchison, Rousseau, Mandeville, um, and, 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 and indeed his friend Hume. Um, so that's a, there's, a, there's a, I think, a, a, an added layer to that that you don't necessarily see so much of in The Wealth of Nations. Um, he does engage with some of the other people in The Wealth of Nations, uh, the mercantil, the mercantilist thinkers, the, the physiocrats, but there's not the same sense that he's taking part in a debate. There, he's he seems to be in The Wealth of Nations laying the grounds for what will then become a discussion uh, amongst the, the people who follow him.
0: Can I pick up then um, on you were just saying there about his moral philosophy? One of the themes that, you, one of the points you emphasise in the chapters on. Of moral sentiments is the sense that this is a very sophisticated book. That a lot of the philosophy that, that the authors you were just talking about—less so Hume, but Hutcheson and Mandeville and Hobbes and Butler—offer often quite monocausal, causal That's the right way of putting it. Explanations of uh, uh, morality, and Smith turns up and does something far more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder what, whether you could you know, unpack that a little bit. How how is uh, *Theory Moral Sentiments*? What's the achievement there? What's the leap forward that he makes? Why is this uh, considerably different work? Even though he's engaging with these authors, uh, what's different about what Smith is doing uh, compared to his immediate predecessors?
1: Um, yeah, I think that's that's a good a good way to kind of get a sense of what the project is in TOS, is to think, well, what is it that he thinks he's doing that is an improvement on the, the people that he's engaging with? And I think that one of the great dissatisfactions he has with um, philosophy up to his time is this idea that you, <clears throat> this tendency that philosophers have to hit upon one principle or idea, which they then take to be um, not just constitutive of a way to make a moral any moral decision, um, say like utilitarianism, greatest happiness of the greatest number, that gives you your answer every time, um, but it also... Those philosophers have tended to, on a descriptive level, view moral judgment and moral decision making as being characterized by that principle of their own. Um, I think for Smith, observation tells you that people think about moral problems in more than one way. And sometimes the different elements of how we think about moral problems um, don't cohere. Um, they might lead us to have contradictory possibilities for what the correct answer is and what we should do in any given set of circumstances. And I think that, that, that realisation for Smith said, well, hang on, if I'm going to pursue this, I need to develop a moral, a, 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 an account of human moral experience that is able to take the correct elements that have come out of my predecessor's thoughts and combine them together in an account of the psychology of moral decision making. So he starts the book right at the start. The first line is how selfish soever mankind may be supposed. There are obviously some elements in his nature that make him um, have a concern for other people. And that's him saying right at the start, anybody who tells you that morality can be reduced to self-interest is wrong. And anyone who tells you that morality can be reduced to benevolence is also wrong on a descriptive level for Smith. So it may be that you have a normative philosophy which is guided by a principle of benevolence, that might be fine, but you can't have a descriptive philosophy that says that that's the single decision-making principle, the guide to the moral sense, um, as his his predecessor Hutchison had had argued. So what Smith's going to do in the theory of moral sentiments is look at how people actually make moral decisions and look at the different elements involved in that. And if you go through the book, you see him doing just that. He looks for the place of utility decisions. He looks for the place of the virtues. He looks for the place of justice. He looks for the place of general laws or rules, habits and customs. And all of this has to be fitted together in his view in order to provide you a rounded account of, of, of morality. So, The central thing I think that that drives him is an awareness that there is some truth in his predecessors, but that each of them has seen part of the truth. And if he's able to come up with a system that will advance things, it will be by um, subsuming the elements of of what's true in his predecessors work within an account that's understandable to his audience. And so you see that when he talks about these different schools, he doesn't talk about them in a detached fashion, particularly, at least not until the, 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 the final um, part of the book in part seven, where he does a review of his predecessors. In the rest of the book, he's, he's using everyday examples to show you that another that, that one of the forms or one of the schools of moral philosophy can't capture the truth of this. Um, so just to give an example to, to, to illustrate what I mean, you could look at the idea that you can explain justice as an institution um, by recourse to utility. Um, the idea is that you know, the, 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 the system of justice is in place because it advances the greatest happiness of the greatest number. And Smith says, well, that's true from the point of view of a philosopher after the, after the fact seeking to explain the social function of justice. But it's not true from the human experience of making a judgement about justice. We want to see criminals punished because we want to see their crimes avenged. We want to see the natural order restored and that psychological process is distinct from the philosophers post hoc explanation. So if we want to understand what it is to make a moral decision or moral judgement about the justice of a situation. It's not the philosopher's viewpoint that we should try to understand. It's the actual lived experience. And you've got to kind of find a way for Smith then to bring these two together in the same account. How can it be true that justice as a social institution can be explained through its utility, but at the same time, the individual moral psychology of making a judgment about justice is an entirely different thought process? And that's the kind of problem that he's he's grappling with. That's why I say it's a complex book. Because it has to bring together all of these distinct elements of what it is to make a moral judgment and bring them together in a way that isn't um, overly complicated or um, contradictory or full of gaps. It's got to be fitted together in a way that his audience can follow the thread that connects each of these different ways of doing it. Again, another version of this idea of him being, being systematic.
0: I wonder, um, there's one point, a couple of points, wh- um, where you describe TMS as a sort of a pedagogical work. Um, and that, uh, there's a line that struck me about, I, I, it's part six of the sixth edition, right? The, in the final edition of TMS, we add to, it's part six that he adds, right? In 1790. And there's a, you make it a sort of like a passing comment where you describe, you suggest at this point, David Human separated uh, the moral philosopher who anatomizes, dissects, understands as accurately and empirically as possible that type of moral philosopher from the painter, from the philosopher who tries to describe human nature you know, in a way that you would like to imitate um, to make you more virtuous, right, give you something to, to follow. Um, and in that part that Smith adds to the final edition of TMS, he has brought those two roles back together. So the work is now one where he's both anatomizing and painting um is that a fair summary does that is that a, a is it a pedagogical work where he's trying to get people to to be more virtuous does it fit into that general take of the scottish Enlightenment that's, that's getting more prominent at the moment about moral culture um pedagogy being a central theme this is one of the themes in the ferguson book right one of the central themes of what our main literati are doing mm-hmm. um am i right to pick up on that is that a big theme do you think or where
1: i think you it go is. With that? No, I, I think it is. Um, I, I also think it's not. Um, it, it, it's a mistake to view Part Six as the the crowning achievement, the, the most important thing. Um, Smith isn't a virtue theorist um, because to be a virtue theorist is to limit yourself to one of these modes of explanation that he's trying to bring together. So, it
0: might be, sorry to interrupt, Craig. It might be useful just for our listeners: um, uh, what what yeah what is added in Part Six? So you we're talking yeah. about. Your summary just then and then what's added in part six yeah. before we continue. Sorry, after you. No,
1: sure, sorry. So part six is um, is a, an account of the, the virtues. Um, and it's a kind of, it's an attempt to see if you look at the classical, um, the ancient Greek thinkers uh, like Aristotle and the, um, the Christian medieval thinkers who've written about the virtues and indeed some of his immediate predecessors, um, he 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 essentially goes through the virtues and recasts them so well this is this this is this is still a virtue this is not a virtue um, the society that we live in is one that will because of the nature of its particular structure as a commercial society will place its emphasis on some virtues more than on others so virtues that in the past were very important um, such as bravery for example will be less important in a society um, where violence is less predominant. And therefore, other virtues such as, um, i tried trying to think of an example. Well, one which is actually, I think, quite a good one is, is, is um, punctuality becomes a virtue. Um, honesty becomes more important because of trading relationships. And so in that part of the book, he's going through talking about different kind of characters, you might call them. The man of perfect virtue, uh, the man of self-command, the man of propriety and so on. And these kind of, Character sketches are supposed to be illustrations of good behavior. So in that sense, it's, it's a normative book, uh, part of the book. But at the same time, it's supposed to fit with all the other parts of the book. So it's not to say that Smith suddenly becomes, mm. you know, he doesn't go through and say, right, we've looked at all these different explanations. Um, we've looked at utilitarianism. We've looked at uh, deontological or rights-based theories we've looked at religious theories, and now I'm going to come out and I'm a, I'm a virtue theorist. That's, that's not the point of that book. The, the, the explicitly pedagogical element, I think, that, that comes through there is, is the one that I think is important. He's, he develops the material that becomes this book in the lecture hall at Glasgow University, and this would have been part of his task drawing on the humane idea that the only good painter is a painter who understands anatomy, then he's anatomized what it is to make a moral judgment. And he's now painting the sorts of character traits that will be useful to the readers of the book or to the students in in, in his his classroom. And I think that's the, the, the way that that fits in. I don't think it radically changes the book. Smith is you know, Smith is, as we've been kind of discussing here, he's a careful writer, he's a systematic writer, and he's not going to add something into the mix at that late point in the day that he doesn't think is coherent with the rest of what he says. So I think that the 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 pedagogical element, the the normative element does come through in that section. Um but it's it comes through in a way that's designed to fit with the expl- the explanation of ordinary moral judgment that he's given us in the rest of the book about propriety and about how it is that we we judge ourselves as we make moral decisions.
0: Mm. Yeah, again, fascinating. I'm um, slightly whistled me to the nature of the book, so it's a slightly whistle stop tour. Um, mm. I wonder if we could ask the sort of similar questions about the Wealth of Nations, um, the achievement. Smith's achievement in writing that book, how it differs to early systems, sort of the correct way of thinking about, not the correct way, but the way that you think is most appropriate for thinking about what that book is, what that book is, and
1: what it achieves. Yeah, um, I think again, there, there's there's a, a a sense in which the the overall methodology is very similar um, to, to to TMS. Here is a subject, in this case, political economy. How how are we best to understand how it works? How do people think about it? Um, What have people in the past thought about it? Um, And as I mentioned, he he engages with a a couple of them kind of directly, the physiocrats and and the mercantile thinkers like like Thomas Moon. Um, But also in the background and and, and unmentioned is is his, um, his fellow Scott, uh, Sir James Stewart, um, who wrote a, a similarly intentioned text um, uh, a few years before The Wealth of Nations. Um, so what Smith wants to do, and I think it's there in the title of the book, because it's an, the full title is An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. So it's a scientific ex- attempt to understand what wealth is and where it comes from. And the central explanatory principle, as we mentioned earlier before, is, is the division of labour. So if Smith can, can, can carry off what he's going to do, then he is going to explain how a modern commercial society operates in a fashion which is more coherent and more successful in what it can explain than any of his predecessors. And he's going to be able to do that at the same time as connecting together Um, the different parts of um, the operation of an economy. So he's going to be able to explain the operation of foreign trade, and he's going to be able to explain the evolution of domestic markets within the country. He's going to be able to explain um, how it is that capital develops. Um, He's going to explain the purpose of the banking system and how that facilitates the movement of capital. And he's going to be able to take a view in book five on policy suggestions, on things that he thinks the government ought to be doing and what its role should be. And if he does this successfully, he'll do it in a way that fits uh, together in line with this general systematic account. So if you go to the book, what you'll get is a complete system that explains how the economy of a commercial society operates. And I think that's the achievement really, if you look at it today, the way that you know the, there have been advances, obviously, in economics since the time of Adam Smith, some of them good, some of them not so good. <laughs> um, but all of the basic elements of how we think about the operation of an economy are there. And if they're not there, they come in the next couple of generations by people responding to Smith, people like Mill and Ricardo and Marx. And that's where. The central economic ideas that we still operate with today come from so the achievement i think of the book is is a systematic study uh, uh, drawing on a huge amount of empirical research i think we can we can safely say but which at the time um creates a kind of set of concepts that are easily familiar to the reader and help them understand what it is that smith's trying to explain and that i think is the success of it it's not to say that he is right so there are things there that he is i think it's fair to say wrong about in the operation of an economy but what's significant is that he's correct in the way or he has created the way in which we think and talk about these things
0: in terms of I'm supposed to be bringing the two texts together a bit mm-hmm. in terms of the motivation to be systematic to be empirical um where's this coming from if you're Smith, where's what's the who are the authors or the developments? What are cultural and intellectual developments that are prompting this in him? Do you think?
1: Um, I think there are, there are a number of them. I think um, Newton and, and, and Newtonian science, I think, is is a very clear influence on him. Um, and there's been a lot of work by Smith scholars over the last um, twenty years or so, looking at exactly how Newton fits into the world in which Smith and Hume write. I think Hume's another big uh, big influence on him here as well, and, and Hume's desire to, to be able to, to, to have a solid basis for human knowledge and experience. I think those are the things that are, that are primarily driving the methodology for Smith here. It's, it's a, more, a more reliable theory or more reliable explanation is one which can be based on generalizations from the evidence that's in front of you. And that, I think, is his technique for systematic inquiry. But it's also his technique for getting those ideas across to his audience in both The Wealth of Nations and The Theory of Moral Sentiments. It's examples he uses. If he wants to illustrate a point, he talks about, for example, in The Wealth of Nations, when he wants to talk about um, how the value of money can differ depending on the, the place where, um, where you are, he talks about the difference between the value of silver in London and in Canton in China, um, and he shows that there are reasons why that would be the case and why money would have a different value in those places. And that kind of empirical evidence allows him um, to explore the idea that um, wealth is not money. Um, so he does that by showing his reader a very obvious case where that's not true, um, and allows used to then say well of course that's not true i might have thought in the past that it was but now i see that it can't be and something else has to be going on and that leaves smith the space to come up with his um his alternative account i've now got a theory that will be able to explain this better um than the ones that, that that you've had in the past so i think that that desire um is what point Smith towards the 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 desire to be empirical and to always have evidence there as a as a both a a, a solid basis for his theory but also as a as an explanatory tool as well.
0: One of the things that we've been talking about so far and comes across uh, in the volume is um, the benefits that uh, we derive from thinking about Smith in these terms. Think about all of his work, you know, the essays, TMS, automations together as part of a, a single project, would be would be okay with that as a phrase? Okay. Uh, and the sort of the similarities in method, um, alongside the differences in what he's actually focusing on, which there's one of the points that you're stressing. And then when you come up against how um, diverse interpretations of Smith have been over the past 150 Two hundred years. Do you have anything that you know you think is worth mentioning about why Smith has been characterised in so many different ways? Is it like Hobbes and Leviathan that nobody reads parts three and four because they're tedious, so nobody <laughs> reads all of the Wealth of Nations because it, you know book two is hard going, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah why? Why is? Um, why is Smith's reputation what people think he's what people think he argued? How has that varied so dramatically over the past, yeah. couple of centuries?
1: I, I think he's he's suffered a kind of unusual fate. Um, he's one of these historical figures who everyone knows his name and knows what they think he thinks, but <laughs> nobody ever really reads him. So it's actually it's actually in some sense worse than Hobbes and Leviathan. You know, it's not just that they don't read the the the, the, the harder, more difficult bits towards the end. Most people um, don't read any of them. Um, And most people's experience of the Wealth of Nations and Adam Smith comes from first year economics classes, where a very uh, crude version of him appears in the textbooks or in the introductory lecture and then disappears. So I think part of it is that. I think another issue has been that Smith is a different figure in different disciplines. So in economics, he was the kind of grand founding figure, uh, as I say, and always had a kind of place even if he was not well understood. Um, but he was also important for the development of other thinkers. Just to take an example, Marx. So if you look at um, Marx's development of his own thinking about economics, a lot of that is in reaction to thinkers like Smith. Um, so the Smith that, that, that emerges in the popular imagination as you know, the kind of father of capitalism is also in some senses, in some ways the father of Marxism <laughs> as well. Um, yeah because he's coming out of that, that tradition. So it, it, it also, it, it, I mean, it, perhaps the most unfortunate, I think, was the fate of his moral philosophy, because what, what was understood as philosophy changed after Kant in the 19th century, and the careful empirical study of moral psychology became psychology and not moral philosophy. And so for a very long time, Smith was just not part of um, philosophical education um, that's changing now and they're, they're, they're coming back and, and a lot of philosophers are interested in him now but for a long time what Smith was doing the anatomizing, as you described it earlier just wasn't considered to be part of what was proper philosophy um, and I think now we've we're come to a situation where that's, uh, that's, that's thankfully being corrected so there is the, the reason that he's been interpreted in so many different ways I think fundamentally is that um, a lot of people who talk about him haven't read him, and if they have read him, they've read a bit of him rather than all of them. So the economists might have read The Wealth of Nations if they were particularly devoted to their task. The moral philosophers might have read The Theory of Moral Sentiments, but the two aren't necessarily combined. Um, similarly, um, the less well-known works, The Essays on Philosophical Subjects, might go broadly unread by both camps. The lectures on jurisprudence are the same. The the lecture, the notes, the student notes we have of his uh, jurisprudence lectures at Glasgow. So I think he can be different things to different people in that sense, and I think that that's been a a, a feature of how he's kind of understood in the public realm is this fact that you know there is this kind of idea, an idea. That people have that they think Adam Smith um, what his work was and what he believed so that kind of sense there I think that that you know there's, I don't want to go so far as to call it a caricature sometimes it is a caricature it's a mm-hmm. kind of public version of Smith um, and that public version belies a, 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 a far more complicated and complex thinker and certainly in the academic realm his, his influence in a lot of different even diametrically opposed um, political and social views, um, the fact that he's been a major influence on them means that he can appear to be, in some sense, a very div- divided figure. You know, how can the same figure be both the father of capitalism and somebody who has a, a central, um, expl- a central influential role in the development of um, of Marxism, or, or or even if you look at his influence on Mary Wollstonecraft on liberal feminism as well.
0: Mm. And that's one of the benefits of reading all of these things together, is you get a sense of the real achievement. I mean, you know, uh, it's perhaps a slightly banal thing to say, but reading through uh, your book, I'm just reminded of the intellectual achievement of the man. You know, this is an immense amount that he put together, immense amount of originality and deeply sophisticated thinking. Um, You mentioned the lectures on jurisprudence. That's been one of the major... uh, Reasons behind the sort of in Smith studies in recent decades, mm-hmm. um, along with the kind of the reengagement with TMS. Where do you see Smith studies going in the in the future? What what are the interesting questions? How does he still speak to us early twenty first century? Uh, yeah, what's what's to be done? What might be useful? What's worthwhile with yeah. Smith?
1: Um, I think there's there's still I mean there's been a huge amount of work done over the last um, 30 years, really um, more than that, since since the uh, appearance of the Glasgow edition in the, the late 1970s on um, Smith's studies in general. And I think we now have a far better idea of the different elements of his of his thought. Um, the jurisprudence that you mentioned there, um, TMS, the essay and philosophical subjects, I think are now we're now far clearer in our understanding of what they are and what the intention behind them was. Um, I think we're not going to make, um, you know, I I don't think we're ever going to make any more textual discoveries. I think I've given up hope on that. You know, the idea that in some kind of attic in a country house in Aberdeenshire, we're going to get another pristine set of student notes. I, I've kind of given up on that. Um, and I don't think we're ever going to get this um, this third book that he was supposedly writing on justice and politics that he had burned. Um, before, he, uh, before he died. I don't think we're ever really going to get more of a grasp from that than the, the lectures on jurisprudence gives us. Um, so kind of, I'm, not, I'm not kind of um, holding out for that kind of um, uh, material to appear. I think there's been a lot of interesting work done, um, contextual work done on him in very recent years, particularly over his relationships to Hume and Rousseau. And I think that that's an area that's helped us to understand his thought an awful lot more. And I think there are other thinkers where we could probably do with similar um, uh, exercises. I, I really don't think there's been enough work on Francis Hutcheson and on Hutchison's influence on him. Um, you could say the same about Butler um, and the I in mean, Butler's development of an idea of conscience and what the relationship of that notion of conscience is to, to the, the theory that Smith comes up with. So I think that those kind of contextual look at some of the other figures around about them and how Smith's thought interacts with them is probably something that Smith scholars will, uh, um, will turn themselves to more in, 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 in the coming years. If I were to say that there was one area where I think he is going to be important in contemporary discussions and the, the way that disciplines are moving forward, I would point to the fact that we've, we've, we've mentioned a few times in this discussion here, that Smith is a, both a pragmatist in his policy advice, but is determined that whatever his theory is, has to be a description of empirical reality. And I think this fits very nicely with the move in political philosophy and political theory, away from idealized discussions of a, a just society, Towards attempts to understand non-ideal conditions of real-world politics, because I think that's what Smith does. Um, I think the the methodologies that he develops and the kinds of ideas that he develops about how real people make decisions in politics and in their economic life and in their moral life are the kinds of things that people will find very fruitful um, if that kind of move towards that kind of um, real world politics analysis continues. So Smith is the kind of historical thinker, the thinker who uses historical examples to explain how we see a commercial society develop and who in a sense provides us with explanations of how individual interaction and behaviour leads to large scale social change. Um, That kind of Smith I think is going to be the one that still has a lot to, to, to bring to the table. So I would expect to see him appearing uh, more prominently in, mm-hmm. as an influence in 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 those kind of fields over the coming years, because he has uh, what I think is a, a rather obvious set of lessons to 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 be brought to the table for those uh, those disciplines. And I think the other thing, you know, just even more specific than that, that he has, and I think is turning, it's becoming a little bit more clear in in in. The way that economics is, is developing as a less uh, dogmatic discipline now is the mm. idea that, um, that a lot of Smith's little explanatory accounts and character sketches and explanations from the theory of moral sentiments and from um, the wealth of nations um, can be tested empirically. So you can look at um, experimental economists like Vernon Smith and his designing of experiments to see, well, Smith has a model for a certain form of behavior which doesn't appear to conform to the normal economic models. Why did he have that? Can we see if he's correct by designing an experiment? And, and that kind of analysis, I think, is is going to be something that we'll see more of in Smith's studies as well. You know, the idea of if, if he claims, if as he claims, this is an empirically based theory, then can we test the empirical claims that he makes through um, social scientific experiments?
0: Mm. Very interesting. I so I will finish off. I want to say a little a little piece and then I'll ask you a final question. Um, just talking about, you know, what's uh, where Smith studies might go uh, in the immediate future. I remember being an undergraduate in two thousand and five, I was doing a course in the European Enlightenment, International History of the European Enlightenment, under Tim Hochstrasser. I, as you mentioned earlier, people know who Adam Smith is, but they've never read him. I had never read any Smith. I knew I knew who I knew who he was very uh, very vaguely, uh, very generally speaking. And um, I was struck by the fact there weren't there was one historically comprehensive introduction, which was D.D. Raphael. if I pronounce that name correctly. Uh, his uh, very short volume in Oxford University Press's old Past Masters series, which I think is now like you know the predecessor to a very short introduction series, like a little ninety-page book.
1: Yeah.
0: And it was it presumed a lot of knowledge, and I tried to read it, and I didn't get anywhere. And so Smith was lost on me because it is quite difficult stuff and it is quite challenging uh, to to get to grips with if you haven't engaged with it before. And I think that I should be teaching Smith in the new academic year, to, maybe at home, maybe in the classroom, who knows? Yeah. But I think it'll be much easier. I appreciate that you, you've tried to do lots of things in this book, but one of the things it is, is an introductory overview, right? Yeah. And I would recommend it to our listeners uh, as a, you know, very comprehensive, very, accessible yet sophisticated account of nearly everything Smith you know, writes about. So it's yeah, it's comprehensive uh, in its coverage, but it also uh, doesn't lose out on sophistication. So I think, yeah, I feel like those classes, my Smith classes will go somewhat better. Now I'm not relying on, <laughs> you know, now I have an additional, uh, you know, uh, uh, helping hand in this book. So I would strongly recommend it. I think it's about 17, 18 pounds. So it's also a, a decent price well-produced by policy. I'm doing another advert for you here at the end. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) But we'll finish off um, with a personal question for you. What are
1: you up to next? That's that's a good question. Um, I'm kind of, uh, I'll I'll go back on something I I said a a moment ago to you, um, that we, I I was saying there, we're we're not expecting to find any more Smith texts. Um, But one thing I have been doing is I've been working on his books, his library. Um, and looking at some of the marginalia in his books um, with some other scholars um, based in Tokyo and in Edinburgh. And we're trying to see if there's anything there to shed light on his connection to other thinkers um, or <laughs> shed light on uh, really anything about him in the absence of any more um, direct material.
0: Anything um, exciting? Th- Can you drip feed anything?
1: Well, <laughs> there's there, there there's there's a number of very interesting problems about um, about. It. Uh, not the least is that he's uh, there's lots of marginalia, but um, working out whose marginalia it is, is, uh, is proving rather difficult. Um, and also he, he seems to have been um, the sort of person who starts off with good intentions. So the first chapter of a book is, is, is highly noted and underlined and then nothing else after that. Um, so that, that, that's a kind of slight disappointment. There's not a, <laughs> he's not a systematic note taker, uh, however systematic a thinker he is. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, we're looking to, to, to try and see if we can draw anything out of that from Smith. Um, the other things that I've been working on, as you mentioned, I, I, I finished from work on, on Adam Ferguson and the book there. And um, I, I think Ferguson is someone that I'll, um, I'll probably return to um, in one form or another, um, over the 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 coming years, and I kind of I I spent the last few years focused very clearly on, on Smith and on Ferguson. So, I think my uh my 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 resolution for this um, strange lockdown mm-hmm. period was to try and go back and look at some of the other figures in the Scottish Enlightenment that I I've read in the past, but not really perhaps devoted as much thought to as I as I should do. So I I have a pile of books by. Um, by figures, other figures in the Enlightenment, the Scottish Enlightenment, people like Robertson and, and, and Beattie and Stewart and, and and Dunbar and people like that. That I I want to go back and have a look at and and see, having focused for so long on Smith and, and Ferguson and to a lesser extent Hume, to see what what more I can I can draw out of of, um, of those thinkers who are part of the same kind of uh, the same kind of group. So those are the two kind of um, major. Uh, Intentional projects that I hope to get um, hope to get back to when uh, when things return uh, a little bit closer to normal.
0: Excellent. Okay. So, thank you, Dr. Coke Smith. Adam Smith is a senior lecturer in the Scottish language in the School of Social and Political Studies, University of Glasgow. That's a really fascinating conversation. Very much appreciate your time. This is Robin Mills signing off for the St. Andrews Institute of Intellectual History's New Work in Intellectual History podcast series. I hope you join us again soon.